Welcome back to the Hall Pass Podcast. This is our season two, episode one. We took a week break uh, last week, and so now we're on season two. Today, we're actually going to do a recap episode of our season one's biggest tips, tricks, and advice. Uh, Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back, Jay. Hello. How was your trip to Korea? Uh, It was amazing. It gave me a, a very different perspective of education culture. And believe it or not, a lot of the challenges that Korean students face. Oh, by the way, a lot of Koreans want to come to the United States, if you guys don't know, to have their higher education done here. And so there's a huge exodus of high school students in Korea that are making their way over to, uh, to colleges in the U.S. That's adding to the competitiveness of domestic students here. I would kind of I would love to learn about that because all I ever hear is just how far behind the U.S. is in testing yeah. in whatever categories. Mm-hmm. But people always come here for the best education. Right. So it right. seems like there's a little bit of I think hypocrisy the discrepancy there. comes I don't know. from high schools to, to exactly. higher, higher education. Yeah. Our 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 undergraduate graduate schools are the upper elite but when i think the the metrics you're referring to travis come to when it's primary school and middle school k through 12 education yeah yeah. but it was amazing glad to be back let's get on topic in terms of what we want to cover for today i I see that we have quite a bit today we have uh travis richard and jay punkages in wisconsin this week, Wisconsin. <laughs> this week, cheese curds. Um, and so, but we we're so happy to have Jay back. Hopefully, he can um, bring some of his Korean uh, uh, jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I learned a lot of Korean jokes <laughs> while he was in Korea. Um, so, what we want to do today is actually go back through season one um, and just kind of pinpoint the most important uh, and valuable tips and advice. Um, Towards the end of our episode, we actually received such a great amount of emails um, since we took a week off, but um, there was a particular email that we received that I will talk about later that we really, really appreciated and want to spend some time answering her question. So before we go through that, we're actually going to go through the content. So um, let's start with uh, GPA. Let's, Let's go back to the basics. All right. So let me take this over. GPA is I'm going to make the argument it's like 50%, 60% of your decision. You have to reach a certain point. Otherwise, the schools are not going to be prone to look at everything else, even though they say it's a holistic assessment. There are certain expectations. Um, I know that if you look at UCLA's admission statistics for the fall of 2016 season, the average like 47% admit rate was at a 4.3 weighted GPA. And then anything 4.29 or below, so anything below 4.3, you drop down to a 10% admit rate. So places like UCLA are looking for an unweighted of a 4.3. To clarify about the GPA, there's so many different kinds, unweighted, weighted, 9th to 10th, 10th to 12th. Bottom line, you want to look at the unweighted to first identify the raw effort value, A's versus B's versus C's, D's, and F's. Remember, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, GPA reflects effort. It does not reflect how smart you are. And therefore, if you do no studying and hope to just ace the test the next following day and you don't happen to, you can't just lift up your hands and say, oh my God, I don't know what happened. My teacher sucks. No, you didn't do the effort. Either you put in the effort or you didn't. Plain and simple as that. The second type of GPA that I would look for when I'm doing an admissions evaluation is obviously the weighted GPA. And I think more so this year, we noticed the trend of how it's important to take impacted rigorous course loads. Um, I've made it, I mean, we can have a debate on this entirely on another episode, but today I would definitively say the answer to the age-old question, is it better to get an A in a regular class or a B in an AP class or a weighted class. And I'm going to say it's better to get the B in the AP or weighted class. Granted, there's a lot of details that we may have to go around, but general rule of thumb, you got to have the course rigor, especially if you're aiming for top 25, top 50 U.S. universities. Yeah, so I would say also that uh, I think Jay, you know, he says that the GPA probably takes up somewhere between 50 and 60 percent of a college admissions decision. Um, and that probably is the case for, for, for a few schools. Um, but also just remember that, like he said, it is a very holistic process. So don't feel bad if you are, you know, not in the upper echelon of students who are getting the best GPAs. It doesn't mean that you have no shot of getting into the colleges that you really want to get into, because, again, colleges will be looking at um, all aspects of your application as I, much as I they would look at. Can. I would look at GPA like this like like a food pyramid right so your gpa is here that baseline comes here analogies. comes the metaphor your gpa <laughs> is that baseline you know it's your breads and grains and all that stuff right but you can still have a healthy diet 
if you're just a little bit lacking, but it is the baseline of it. It's the most important. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. I try to bring the analogies. You, yeah. can, you can still <laughs> eat the, the ice cream even though it's not, you know, the best for you. Exactly. But as long as you have the foundational elements of the nutrient table. Get your GPA and build from there. I just have to put a side note. I'm sorry. But the original food pyramid given to the U.S. government by nutritionists was altered for the benefit of the food industry and grain growers. But moving I on. S- I actually heard that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that being said. So let's Moving move on. move beyond that. Thank you, Jay, for that that <laughs> insight. Sorry, insight. Um, so beyond the GPA, obviously, um, in terms of looking at your academics, there's also going to be standardized test scores. Um, so testing is going to give admissions insight on your academic cap- capabilities beyond your high school. So uh, while the GPA looks at you know your academics at your high school and how you're doing at your high school, uh, standardized test is going to compare you to students across the globe. Uh, And so like Jay said, GPA shows effort, test scores show aptitude. Uh, It shows um, how well you understand a certain content, um, a certain subject. Uh, And most students have the SAT or ACT, APs, and SAT2s on their list of standardized tests. Of course, there's so many other tests that, you know, there's IBs and TOEFL and things like that. But I would say the majority of students have SAT or ACT, APs, and SAT2s. Uh, My biggest advice for, for standardized test is to start early um, so you can free up your summer to do things beyond academics. Honestly, I have students memorizing SAT vocab starting from 8th grade summer. Um, I have students that are working to go to boot camp for SATs uh, after their ninth grade to try and take them during their 10th grade. So really, you know, the earlier you start the process, the better. I'm not saying that you need to spend every hour, every second um, starting from elementary school to prep for the SATs, but uh, it is something that, you know, that that's going to be on the radar of admissions. They are going to see uh, your aptitude because how how other how many other ways are there for uh, admissions to compare you as a student who um, is going to high school in Orange County to a student who's going to high school in South Korea? Um, and the only way to kind of do that is to t- see your standardized yeah, test. Yeah, for however many flaws there are for these standardized tests, at the end of the day, it's probably one of the few objective ways that students from across the nation and even across the world can be compared to one another Um, and so we still need them you have to take them so study for them prepare for them prepare early uh, and just be aware of the SAT2s and APs and uh, we'll kind of delve into that a little bit more um, later on in this episode as well so let's go into activities extracurricular activities summer activities all sorts of activities well now that you've taken care of the really fun part of the SAT and ACT <laughs> testing. Here's the really brutal part, having fun. All right, so the, I'm coming back with another analogy here. So you look at your extracurriculars like a stock portfolio, almost. So you wanna diversify at first, right? You don't wanna put all of your eggs in one basket because if the market goes down, you're kinda screwed. But so in this case, you want to diversify your extracurricular activities because for one, if you're a freshman in high school, I don't care what you say, there's no way you know what you want to do mm-hmm. and what you want to study. All right, you want to explore yourself and your interests and see what you like. So your freshman and sophomore years, just diversify, explore, find what you're interested in. After that, then you can begin to concentrate a little bit. Okay, so you can begin to look for leadership positions in the ones that you are particularly interested in, start building that rep and even looking for internships, uh, which actually segues quite nicely into my next one, summer activities, where you can look for internships, you can look for research opportunities, you can get a part-time job. A lot of colleges love to see that work ethic and going to work and getting real-life skills in the real world. So for summer activities, this too is a chance to explore your interests as well. Say you did uh, Science Olympiad in in uh, high school, you can look for an internship, a research internship or a summer program in that field as well to continue exploring and developing that and see if that is something that you're really interested in studying. If it's not, you know what? You have your sophomore year, try another one. So it's not really to your junior and senior years that you should really begin to concentrate because college admissions officers like to see you exploring your interests. They like to see you exploring different sides of yourself so they know that you're not just sort of uh, a one trick pony necessarily. 
Absolutely. And there's no one size fits all for activities. You know, activities is such a, a convoluted uh, topic, in my opinion. You know, there's not like, okay, the best type of students go to summer programs every 10th grade summer. You know, you have to get an internship your junior summer. I have plenty of students who have never had an internship their four years in high school. I have plenty of students who focus most of their extracurricular activities on art and uh, and sports instead of, you know, doing, you know, speech and debate there is literally no one size fits all in fact one of the things that we like to do at admission masters is to diversify our students when it comes to extracurricular activities so that not every single asian american or every single high school student in a certain area has the same exact profile um, and to make them a little bit unique and a little bit different and therefore when when admissions looks at your application and they're comparing you to other high school students at your high school school then they're able to say wow this student's a little bit different this student's doing comedy sports and theater that's very different than you know this you know this other student who's doing the same old national honor society uh, california scholarship federation key club interact you know these are kind of the clubs that are very um uh cliche in a way because so many students do it at their high school and i think too this is a really opportune time for you to combine two interests that might seem totally and completely different, right? So I I think nothing would look cooler than the quarterback and captain of the football team who is also a singer, Mm -hmm. right? You're combining two interests that really have nothing to do with each other that I think that that's what makes you extra unique. A singing quarterback. Exactly. Man, that's a musical. High school musical. (laughs) Maybe they should make a movie about that. When you set plays, you sing the play. Done. That's awesome. Um, But absolutely, I agree. I I actually had, we talked about this last time, I think, but we had a student who wanted to be um, a comedian, but then his parents wanted him to be a doctor. And we thought like, Jay, the first thing he said was, what about Patch Adams? And uh, Richard said, Ken Jung, you know, these are people who are comedic doctors you know and and or or they're comedians who are also doctors so it's very possible especially if you want to be a pediatrician being funny to kids is a great way to um you know be a be a doctor while you're giving them shots or or whatever same thing with geriatrics too old people need some fun too happiness yeah (laughs) some smiles every now and then um so yeah that's excellent for extracurricular activities and summer activities um let's delve into teacher recommendations all right. So teacher recommendations. Um, most schools, it, it ranges. Some schools won't require teacher recs. Uh, UCs don't, with the exception of some specific major cases and some UC campuses. Most public schools and, Yeah, don't most public school schools don't. But when it comes to private schools, I typically say one to two. Two tends to be the kind of average that I tell my students to look for, just to cover all the gaps. Um, there are two types of recommendations. Please bear in mind, there's the actual academic teacher recommendations. So those come from the, either the teachers or the counselors. And then there's also what we call supplemental recommendations. Those are things you get from coaches, from outside institute. Maybe you do an outside orchestra and your band conductor could do it for you. Um, Teacher recs typically want to lean more towards the 11th grade. That's where more of the more competitive schools are looking to see their recs come from. Um, They want to see some diversification. Um, It's good to have one in the math sciences and then maybe one in the humanities. When it comes to actual academic teacher recs, let's be clear about this, the core academic. So that's the following, either English, history, math, science, maybe performing visual arts, Maybe foreign language. Actually, foreign language can depend. It could be a great option if you decide to go in like interdisciplinary majors or go for like an international relations major. Um, But for the most part, teacher recommendations are huge. And I want to be clear about this. They are not just a letter. Um, If you go on the Common App, teachers also have to fill out this basic chart about you. And it goes into really detailed aspects of your character, um, your concern for others, for example, your uh, reaction to setbacks. And so... You are being judged the moment you enter your class, whether you keep your head down, whether you have a smile on your face. And by the way, if I had to give you one hint, the simplest of all, always have a smile when you go into class. Always be eager and enthused to learn. It encourages your teacher, creates a positive loopback system. Parents, help your son or daughter out by keeping in mind Teacher Appreciation Day and making sure that you May 9th, by the way. Oh, May 9th. 
As an ex-teacher, she definitely has that mark on Tuesday, her Tuesday, May 9th is Teacher Appreciation Day. <laughs> Might take her a minute to think of one of our birthdays, but Teacher Appreciation Day. There that's you go. Like that. There you go. The Teacher Appreciation. Um, I just want to talk about this really quickly. Okay. Go back to All Jay. Right. So teacher appreci- some schools have Teacher Appreciation Week where um, they have different types of activities for teachers throughout the week. But the actual national day for Teacher Appreciation Day is May 9th. Um, as a former teacher myself, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily say that I looked forward to Teacher Appreciation Day in any means, by any means. But um, the 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 gifts and the things that stood out to me the most, um, I want to just mention really quickly. First, cards. Handwritten cards to your teachers are going to be the most valuable. In fact, I still have my cards. I, I, I know I taught um, pre-K and, y- and younger students, so it's usually they write maybe their names, but their parents are the ones that are writing a little bit more of a note, but I have all of those. And those are the ones that are so much more meaningful. Of course, you high school students don't make your parents write the the letter, the teacher recommendation, I mean, the teacher card. You should be writing that card. Um, And also just be sure that you're not writing the same thing for every single teacher that you're writing a card for. Mm. You'd be surprised. Teachers sometimes compare cards and gifts, Um, Jay, Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and sometimes you know he's there are teachers that are like oh you know this student gave me this and it's very possible that um you know maybe in the in the teacher's teacher's room or something like that they're they're looking at each other's cards and they're like wow this is like almost exactly the same yeah Which i'm trying to be boastful here like hey look what this student wrote isn't it amazing and then he wrote me the same thing exactly exactly so um so write something that's meaningful and write something that's genuine second um yes teachers go to starbucks a lot of teachers eat drink coffee um, and have to eat breakfast like yeah Starbucks gift cards are great but one of the most meaningful gifts I've received from a student um, was something that wasn't a Starbucks gift card and it probably might have only been like maybe a quarter maybe a dollar Um, but the student remembered that I loved the color pink and bought me like a little um a little thing um, to put on my desk um, that was pink. And she l- told me, she gave that to me and said, I remember that you love the color pink. And so I gave that to you. So if you are a high school student and you go to um, your high school and you remember your high school teacher saying something about uh, maybe something they like, maybe your high school teacher loves, your English teacher loves motorcycles and you buy them like a little $5 mini motorcycle that they can put on their desk. That is going to be so much more meaningful because the teacher teacher is going to say, wow, you remembered that I loved motorcycles or you remembered that this was meaningful to me in my life. Um, And that is something, you know, that's worthwhile. I'm not saying you need to spend money on your teachers at all. Um, I'm sure teachers love being teachers because that's their job and they love teaching and they love education. And so, but a handwritten card, I think goes a really, really long way. So recharges their batteries for sure. I feel definitely the same. Yeah. Um, So Sorry, go ahead. No, go no, that's right. The, yeah. the, and that public announcement from the Teachers Association. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. fantastic. May 9th. May 9th, everyone. But yeah, Teacher Rex, let's be clear about this. They are tremendous in the sense that it, it's it's kind of the irony with interviews. And I know Vincent's going to go next into it. Here's my thought process on it. It's kind of necessary to get the Teacher Rex and interviews done well. You want a good one. But it doesn't mean that you have a – because you are given an excellent letter of recommendation, you're going to have a suddenly, like, 50% increased chance of getting into Harvard. Mm-hmm. If anything, it'll give you, like, a 5% chance. But then if you don't get a good one, if it says – you know, you ask for a teacher rec and they say, this student is cocky, this student doesn't listen to orders, it's very pretentious, blah, 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 blah. Then that could be like minus 30% chance to your admission. Mm-hmm. So there's low benefit, high risk, but it's necessary in mm-hmm. most of the cases. And there's no rule for teacher recs, by the way. I also want to be clear about the UCs. UC Berkeley is the only campus um, that asks for recommendation letters, and that's not during the application process, actually. That's um, after you submit your application. They mm-hmm. may ask you uh, to submit two letters of recommendations that are also optional, by the way. Um, but the common application does require two uh, teacher recommendations, and um, some schools will allow you to have a supplemental rec letter. But like like Jay said, they can really come from any teacher 
um, as long as they are going to speak highly about you. Right. You know, and if, if that is a Spanish language teacher that, you know, maybe your major's on Spanish, but, you know, that teacher knows the most about you because you've done um, National Spanish Honor Society and you were a leader in that club and she, this teacher knows you inside and outside. Saw you grow. Exactly. That um, is going to be valuable as a teacher rec. So really just think about who the teacher is and what they're going to say about you. So the way I say it to my students is, in the end, you want to aim for 11th grade, you want to prioritize that, but choose the teacher who will vouch for your studentship mm -hmm. and growth mm -hmm. the most. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And your personality. Um, okay, so let's move into interviews. All right, so like the teacher recommendations, not every college is going to be expecting their students to do an interview. Um, so again, most public schools like the UCs will not be asking for interviews from their students. Um, but depending on the school, interviews can be very important to a student's application. Interviews provide admissions officers an opportunity to get a better understanding of the student, whether it's his personality, his interests, past experiences, and the general rule is to take advantage of them when possible. And so again, some schools will reach out to the students and ask the students whether or not they would like to uh, schedule an interview with an alumni. Other times it's on the student's part to contact the schools and to set up an interview themselves. Um, again, if the school asks the student to do an interview and the student denies that, then it can potentially look bad on the part of the student as well. So usually we like would say- Like you're hiding something. Right, it can potentially look like you're hiding something. So we usually say if the admissions officers um, contact you trying to schedule an interview with you, take advantage of that, do some preparations beforehand and see if there's any way that you can go in. Um, and again, one of the most important things that interviewers are looking for is how much interest the student actually has in the school. Mm -hmm. So definitely do your research before you go into the school Make sure you know exactly what it is about the school that separates it from all the other colleges that you're applying to and, and show them during the interview that, look, I did my research. I really want to go to this campus. And these are the different things that really st stood out to me the most. And here's what I will bring to the campus, right? Here, right. Here's what I would bring to the college Why, as why well. will you be a good fit here? Right. Something that they want to see right. as well. Um, so set up interviews with colleges, usually around January. Again, sometimes you have to set up the interviews with the colleges. Other times they will reach out to you to set up that interview. But just make sure at the end of the day you are practicing. This is a skill. Interviewing is a skill. No one is just automatically the best interviewer. Mm -hmm. This is something that you need to prepare for beforehand. Quick note, schools like USC, I know USC is relatively popular. They actually open up their interview slots I think in like September or October right. and they so, fill up quickly too yeah, so you want to make do. sure you, you uh, sign up for that as soon as they open up which means you want to know what your college list is gonna look like a lot earlier than that probably around August even earlier you want to mm -hmm. have start building as a junior as you finish your APs you got to start thinking about what your college list is gonna look like because some of these interviews come earlier than you might expect I don't think we had a discussion about college lists. I'm assuming we'll have a discussion about that Absolutely. later on. Jenny's writing episode. it down right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so in terms of uh, interviews and just like ninth and 10th graders and even 8th graders right now, you guys can really practice these interviews by taking advantage of interviews that are happening at your high school. For example, sometimes getting leadership positions or things like that require interviews. Um, the other thing is opening opening yourself up to talk to people that aren't just your, in your friend circle. I'm not saying that you need to go up to your friend and say, interview me, I need to practice. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, you should you should put yourself in, in positions and situations in the classroom where you are engaging in conversation with people that you're not necessarily familiar with. Um, and that way you kind of practice a little bit more on the interviews um, and the interview aspects. So really what Richard said is absolutely correct. Practice, practice, practice is so important. Preparation is key. Not everyone is the most perfect interviewee. And at the end of the interview, almost every interview, I, I don't know if I've seen one without it, they'll open it up to for you to ask them questions mm -hmm. and I, I read a quote the other day that I loved it says judge a man not by his answers but by his questions mm -hmm. and I think that's so good because I think if you ask really solid questions at the end of the interview mm -hmm. you can make what might have been an unmemorable or forget forgettable interview mm -hmm. really solid Absolutely. and this the silver bullet that we talked about uh, when we had the interviewing episode was what reservations do you have about hiring me mm -hmm. or bringing me onto your campus? Mm -hmm. However, oh, you, you gave know, that however, away. We, we I was going to use that. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's so but good. If so you good. ask solid questions like that, 
you can sort of flip the interview around a little bit. It's not like a power move, but they're going to be taken aback and think, huh, that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. And you can make, like I said, you're not going to be an expert interviewer at first. Mm -hmm. Nobody is. Mm -hmm. I was atrocious in my first interview. It was terrible. <laughs> All right, but it just takes a little bit of practice. But if you ask solid questions, that's something they're going to remember. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm. Um, so asking good questions, I think staying away from like the typical, how much money is it to come to the school or <laughs> what are other right. some typical, typical questions like how um, many students are on this campus? Yeah. Or, or what is stuff you could what find on the GPA? website? Yeah. Like, well, come on. Give us some research. Yeah. Boys and, girls. and there are a lot of <laughs> other kind of small tips that we covered in our previous episode yeah. in season one. So, so yeah, go back and listen to that one specifically. Um, if you have questions or you you're can find on iTunes. Yep. <laughs> Or www.thehallpasspodcast.com. Oh, well, you took it from Trump. No, I no, that's the G. Yeah, oh. I, do the email. <laughs> I do the website. I do the website. He does the email. Got it. Um, okay, so let's go into our next two bigger um, applications. I actually wanted to save the coalition application for season two just because um, it's, a, it's a newer application and not a lot of students are kind of covering or using the coalition right now. Um, so we're just going to cover the Common App and the UC App, which was covered in season one. So let's start with the Common App. The Common Application is a one-stop application that multiple colleges utilize to make the application process easier for students. Um, so they'll ask you some fairly simple questions uh, about things like your demographics, geography, language, uh, your family. They'll also, also ask you questions about your activities, your education, which again shouldn't be very difficult questions to answer. The majority of your time will likely be spent on the Common Application Personal Essay, which we talked about before. They give you a choice between seven different, seven different prompts, um, and you have to pick one and write an essay of around 250 to 650 words. Um, the, the common application can be a very time-consuming process, so just make sure that you are starting early, that you're brainstorming with others if possible. Go through multiple drafts and always proofread before submitting. Um, remember that each college in the common application as well will have additional questions mm -hmm. that they'll be looking for, which mm -hmm. can oftentimes include more essays. Uh, so just make sure that you are starting early. Make a common app ID over the summer um, and take the time to familiarize yourself with the common app you probably want to start filling in the simple things first so that you can spend more time revising later on um, mm -hmm. and so again just as early as possible just start putting in the information on this application mm -hmm. so I'm a huge proponent of independence that you could do anything you set yourself out to do because you have Google these days mm -hmm. right but this is the one place I, like by the time you reach senior year you could have done everything perfectly, GPA, test score, activities, extracurriculars, summer programs, but if you don't put it in the right way on the Common Application, because the Common App has its own little kind of rule of thumb things. For example, their descriptions are really short, like 80 characters, mm -hmm. including spaces, and the order in which you put them are also very important because they kind of go in a descending order of, uh, uh, of I guess, significance to you. Um, I've seen a lot of students with amazing applications, but they didn't fill out the application correctly. Mm -hmm. They didn't fill it out to optimize and to really bring out their strengths. I've seen this so many times. They apply already, they get a result back for early, and they come to us end of December, beginning of the year, saying, hey, Jay, what went wrong? I thought this was a solid application. And then I look through the activities and I see a lot of typos. I see a lot of inefficiencies or places where they could have accentuated a huge strength, mm -hmm. but it actually made it weaker the way they put it in. Mm -hmm. And so please, if you're gonna get help anywhere along the way, make sure that when it comes to filling out the application, you do it right because you could take all four years and make it worthless in that one mistake. Mm -hmm. What you might think is a minor detail that you're like, oh, I can just look over this, not a problem, could actually be a major detail that could influence your application yeah. is what, is Jay, what Jay is saying. Um, okay, so let's move into the UC application. So really the biggest difference between the Common App and the biggest differences actually between the Common App and the UC App um, is the affordability scholarship and income section of the UC application. I mentioned this during the episode, but the UC application was created for in-state California students um, to close the achievement gap and the educational gap um, so that they can make uh, higher education a little bit more affordable. So they will be asking some of that information. Um, the essays are also different. Um, uh, 
as uh, Richard mentioned earlier, the Common App will only ask for one essay that's 250 to 650 words from a choice of seven prompts. The UC application asks for four essays out of eight prompts. Um, each are going to be 350 words maximum. Uh, and I also think that the activities and community involvement, part-time job, like the awards section on the UC application is, a, in my opinion, a little bit more holistic than and categorized than on the Common App. In fact, mm. on the Common App extracurricular activity section, it's just 10 slots and it's just like any type of 10 activities that you want to put in there and it, it could be anything, internship, summer program, you know, doesn't really give you um, the sections. But in the UC application, they're actually separated by section. Five, five, five. Yep. And so and so you have 15 kind of categorical um, extracurricular activity, quote unquote, sections that you can write this. And so I think it makes it a little bit more holistic um, overall. So uh, those are the biggest differences between the two. Um, season two is actually going to cover, uh, we're going to delve into some of these specific topics more um, deeply, I guess, so to speak, because season one was mostly for us to give you guys a general um, kind of understanding of topics and and like uh, kind of going through the higher, uh, sorry, high school education system. Um, but now for season two, we want to delve into these topics a little bit more and deeper. Um, okay, so thank you guys to giving us an overview of season one. Um, we're actually going to go into the questions uh, from our listeners. We took a week off, so we uh, we got a lot of questions, but I did want to highlight and feature one parent. Um, we received an email from a parent who was um, so grateful and thankful for our podcast. Um, but honestly, we are so grateful we and got thankful. So <laughs> you were narrating it to us, and we're like, oh my goodness, it was amazing. That's um, <laughs> our reward for it i mean obviously that's like it makes it all worth it we were sitting here like clapping we were like yeah. yes <laughs> this is the greatest email ever yeah so we were so grateful and thankful um for this mom um just a little bit of background she says that she has two children um one's finishing up 10th and the other is finishing up eighth this year um and she says she listens to our uh podcast every single thursday morning um when when she wakes up and uh and she's she's looking forward to kind of learning from us and she really likes our our um podcast so what i wanted to do today was um to feature all of her questions that she had just because they were such excellent questions that i feel that our listeners will also learn from as well and a thank you from us as well yeah just just thank you so much for um listening and and uh and, and we sending appreciate us that, it we couldn't be doing email. this without you guys absolutely our listeners are so important um so what i'm going to do is go ahead and just go through these questions and then i'm going to answer them if any of you guys have things that you want to add feel free to add them sure. So um, number one question she had was, what do you recommend to your students about SAT two tests? Do you advise all of your students to take them? So I'm going to say that, you know, we're, we're at a we're at a point in college admissions where m a lot of the colleges do ask for SAT two subject tests. So um, in our planners for our high school students, we do advise our students to take at least two SAT twos and recommend three SAT twos to them. I am going to be honest with you that the UC system does not require SAT2s unless for specific majors. Um, and so if you're only applying to UC schools, it's very possible that you don't take any SAT2s and still get accepted. I've had students who went to Yale, um, who's, who have gotten into Yale and did not take a single SAT2 either. Um, so while they're not as mandatory, I feel like it's a great way to show your academic aptitude beyond um, your high school curriculum. So I do, um, uh, we do actually advise our students to take them. We, you don't have to take five, you don't have to take 20, they don't even have 20 um, but you, but we do advise that you take two or three and usually they fall very similarly to your AP testing um, and so if you're taking AP US history for example in May then we advise that you take SAT 2 US history in June yeah and and you also just want to be aware that a lot of students don't really finalize their college list until probably their senior year fall and it would just suck if you didn't take any subject tests and then you decided hey I really want to apply to Cornell now I just I did some research into it it's one of my favorite schools I really want to go here and then you realize oh you need to take two subject tests exactly. to, to, to apply to this school so exactly. you I would say again by your junior year it would be a good idea for you to take some of these subject tests so that just in case when you start working on your college list that isn't something that is going to take you out of the running for, for applying Absolutely. to these schools Absolutely. there are some schools and that also goes down to major too because like if you plan on applying in an engineering major I know that some college departments require at math level two at least to show and so um I think the best way to approach this, general of thumb, 
two required expect two to be required three to be recommended i think that's that covers the widest range of the possibilities right. out there right 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 mm -hmm. and and there will be some students that don't need to take the subject test like again depending on which school you want to go to and what you want to 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 accomplish like what what kind of school you want to attend um but for the most part yeah for the, the great majority of our students we would recommend they take hopefully three here's why i recommend it regardless of whether the school advises to keep to submit it or not okay firstly it's not that hard to overlap as jenny said they're very similar i think like 80 to 90 percent of ap us history can translate into the sat2 us history so in may you take the ap test and right after in june you take that test so typically i reserve march the month of March until June for GPA management and test prep, specifically APs and any transferable SAT2 subjects from those APs. By standard default, if you're aiming for a top 25, you're going to be taking AP US history, uh, most likely. So US history follows suit. Then you could take math level 2C. Um, after taking even pre-calculus or while you're concurrently enrolled in pre-calculus. So there's really no reason why you wouldn't want to take the SAT2. Uh, it's easy to supplement into your already busy schedule without too much of a deficit or an issue there. And in addition to that, it's an extra measure for the schools to feel more certain of your academic candidacy. So mm -hmm. I say two required, three recommended. Perfect. Um, and so that answers to the number two question, how many subjects do you recommend? Um, this mom was told that about two is fair and good, math two being a top recommendation and other subject of your strength. Honestly, colleges are not going to say um, math level two is the top recommendation. In fact, I have many students who are not going into the STEM field that don't take math level two because just math is just not a strength for them. Mm. Um, and a lot of times they'll just take U.S. history and world history um, and maybe like a, a literature or something like that. Um, and so I, I think that's another reason that you need to kind of consider what major you want to do and what direction you want to go in, what academic strengths do you want to show um, with admissions. There's so many ways to look at this. For example, let's say you're getting a B in pre-calculus, you got a B in algebra, but then you got an 800 on your math SAT2 math level two. That kind of shows admissions that, okay, maybe these courses were a little bit difficult, um, but it's, it's it's clear that you do understand the concepts of, of math um, all the way up to pre-calculus because that's what it's testing. So you want to be a little bit strategic about that um, but to answer this question in short uh, there is no like specific subject that we necessarily recommend more so what's going to kind of fit with your schedule in terms of the courses that you're taking maybe will be strategic when it comes to your major or you know or GPA making up yep, or making up for your GPA but for the most part two recommended I mean two required three recommended is what we go just with. just as a side question because I get this question a lot from my from parents um, for those students that want to take a subject test, what is the main differences between math level one and math level two? Would you even recommend that students do math level one? I love how you're asking us this question when you already know the answer, but <laughs> I'm gonna pretend that you're asking this genuinely. I'm gonna say math level one, don't even bother with it. Um, most schools in the top 25 will just kind of look at those like, where's your math level two? Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'm not, again, there's so many different ranges of students that come to us and I do, I'm guilty of kind of leaning towards like a top 25, top 50 type of approach. In that light, if you're a parent, if you're a student in that sense, then math level one is not worth your time. Jump to math two or do something else. All right. Thank you. What score, what score do you set as a guideline of a breaking point for your students to decide to keep or drop the score? I have, a, I have one, but I want to see other counselors here. Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on the student. If you have no scores and you just need a score, well, then at that point, you know, mm -hmm. 680, 670 can sometimes be a score that you can submit. But for most students, I, I like to look at it more at, in terms of like the percentile ranking because a 750 in Math 2 in February might be different from a 750 in Math 2 in June, right? Because um, you, you need to see how, how you ranked in comparison to all the other students who took that test as well. And so colleges will see that that percentile ranking that you got on the test. As part of your score uh, report. I, I will say that uh, <laughs> for, for top tier students, I want to see scores that are usually 750 or higher. On the high mm. end of the 700s. Yeah, so I say top 15, top 25, you are safe, but not necessarily excelling when you have a 740 or higher. Permissible in the top 50 ranking, I'd say it's 680 or higher. You remember anything below a 680, below a 640, I gotta be honest with you, student, 
you just didn't put in the effort. <laughs> student, student. <laughs> That's the bottom line. So um, I have two measures. First measure is 740 or higher to say, you know what? Don't worry about it. Move on. Mm-hmm. And then the other one would be 680 as in, okay, we met the requirements. So <laughs> we're over the gate. Let's move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then other things that parents ask me are like, oh, but we got a 730 mm-hmm. in math level two. Like, do we have to retake it? And that really comes down to timing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're a senior, your applications need to come in and you're 730, we got out of other things to worry about. Um, or even if you're a junior towards the end of the year, you got a 730. Unless you feel confident that you're going to get like a 790, 800 the next time you take it where you're showing really a lot of improvement from your first time, then it would be worth taking it. But if you're just going to go from a 730 to a 740 or 750, it's just it's just not worth it at so that point. Let me mix in two answers because I know we're short on time here. So firstly, like how much of a difference do you need for you to warrant that second attempt? So if you, for example, get a 730, I'd say try to get about 40 points or more. So 770 or higher. How do I know if I'm going to get that? Well, this goes into how you should practice for the SAT2 subject test. And that's how to practice for almost any other standardized test. These standardized tests are about repetition. I have one rule. I've been teaching SAT for 12 years, ladies and gentlemen. I'm an <laughs> old geezer now. Uh, my one axiom is never make the same mistake twice. So how do I study for something like the SAT2 subject test? Well, you want to buy yourself about two to three months in advance. You want to reserve yourself one hour to take a practice test. These subject tests are only one hour long, ladies and gentlemen, and they're multiple choice. Um, They're very easy to put into a study regimen. So I'd say one practice test per week for about two to three months. When do you feel you're ready? Well, take a look at your previous practice scores. If you are consistently scoring 780, 790, 790, three weeks before your test date, that's that allows me as your counselor to say, go ahead, green light, take it, don't worry about it, try to keep the score unless you feel like you had a really bad take the day of. Mm-hmm. Um, practicing is, it, there's no other way around it. You have to practice. I personally like Barron's prep book. You go on Amazon, buy yourself like an SAT2 prep book as you're studying for the AP US history in class anyways. On the weekends, you supplement for the SAT2 by cracking open that prep book, setting aside two to three hours, and then taking a one hour practice test. You rinse and repeat that from March until June, and you are going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So let's move on. To number four, if you take two or more subject tests on the same day and feel that you did well on one and not the other, can you decide to keep only one? The rule of College Board is that if you take more than one test in one sitting, you have to cancel all tests in that one sitting if you would like to cancel one. Unless your equipment failed. (laughs) If your calculator did not work for Mm -hmm. the math one or Mm -hmm. the math two, or Mm -hmm. if your CD player failed during the language test, then you can cancel only that test score and keep the other ones as well. But that is the only stipulation, in which case you can can cancel just one test score on that test day. I feel like we just opened the door to kids being like, man, I'm having a tough test. I'm (laughs) going to break break my calculator. We are not advocating. For that, please don't do, do not that. break your calculator. Your proctor will know that notice <laughs> that you are breaking that you have a screwdriver <laughs> instead of a pencil in your in your testing location. Um, so yeah, if you if you want to cancel one, you cannot do that. Um, if you've taken two or more on the same exact day, unless like Richard said, something is malfunctioning, um, in which case you need to tell your proctor right away, and they'll let you cancel that te- that just that test score if ne- if needed. Um, or if you decided to, question number five was if you decided to keep both the scores and you find that you resulted well on one and not the other, can you just send one score to the college? Um, so the college board, if you go on college board, it is going to allow you to have the option of score choice. So you can just send the ones that you want to send. Um, the stipulation comes from the colleges themselves and not necessarily college board. So what I mean by this is, for example, Stanford is not score choice, which means that you have to send all scores um, that you have taken so in that case when you go on college board you're going to have to send every single score you're not going to be able to pick and choose the SAT2s that you want to send but there are some schools that say you know yeah score choice you can just send us what you want to send um, and that and then at that point you can just choose the scores that you want to send some colleges will say score choice for all SATs and ACTs but score choice for subject tests they, they'll say just send us the three highest scores that you have in which case again you can just send the three highest scores that you have for the SAT 
52. So again, the rules come from the colleges themselves and not necessarily college board. Um, so that's why, as Jay mentioned earlier, you want to have your college list pretty early. Um, so you can start figuring all that out. Exactly. So you can start researching and figuring all that stuff out so you can see what you need to send. Uh, number six. So my son's specific case is that he is taking his first SAT two math test this Saturday, May six. Good luck. Maybe Jay will give you some tips on that. <laughs> um, he initially registered for the bio test on the same day, but he doesn't too feel too confident and wants to forfeit it on the day of the test with the proctor. Would it hurt to just take it and see what he gets? All right. So this is let me let me go into my SAT tutor mode here. Um, first and foremost, you have the option of not picking up the AP, uh, the SAT2 bio test if you don't feel comfortable. So you don't have to cancel the entire day. If you just, you have to make the decision the day before, am I going to pick up the bio test and give it a shot or am I not? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you decide not to, no harm, no foul. You just don't pick it up and you'll still get the math two test and you still get a score hunky dory. Now to address whether you want to take the bio test or not. Ideally, you should have been taking practice tests for at least five <laughs> to eight weeks, okay, consistently. So you should have at least five to eight practice test results by this point. If you don't, then you are going into the SAT2 bio test, hoping that there is some SAT2 bio god that you can pray to, <laughs> right, for this YOLO score, right? Um, I go off of metrics. I'm an econ guy. I have to look at data and stats. And I think every student needs to approach it this way as well. You don't know. No one can recommend to you whether you should keep a score, take a score, whatnot, unless they see the previous three weeks of your progress. And so I'd start there. Um, because the test is in June, you may have already signed up for it. This gives you at least four weeks to take practice tests. That's four practice tests. Maybe that could be enough. But based upon that, yeah, it depends. Um, it's hard for me to recommend without knowing the previous history and progress. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so biggest, biggest advice, I guess, from Jay is just don't pick up the bio test if you feel like you, you don't want to take it because then you are putting yourself at risk to have to cancel your math score as well. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're not going to take it, you don't feel comfortable, just don't pick it up at all and just take the SAT2 math and then um, figure to take it later. I'm assuming that if your son is in 10th grade, um, if he's taken AP bio and he's prepped for the AP bio exam as a sophomore in may then potentially you know if he if he was able to um prep for one more month so like you know there's an sat2 available in june um perhaps he can take the sat2 bio in june instead of at this point and do what jay said and take a few more practice tests um for the sat2 bio just to be familiar with the content yeah, throw in some private tutoring throw in uh an after school academy if necessary another point i want to make about all standardized tests is that you want to begin with a diagnostic score before you're about to embark whether you want to take the SAT 1 versus the ACT, for example, or whether you want to take an SAT 2 subject test, take a diagnostic practice test score so you know where you begin. We know that it's not likely going to be very good. Maybe it'll be a 620, a 640. But that score is important because that tells me as your, your teacher, for example, um, how much time I should expect to give you to improve to what you want to get. Mm -hmm. So from a 640 math level two initial practice score to get to an 800, I say on average it takes about two months. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think take practice tests, track your progress, rely on your progress to make the decision as to whether you want to take a test for a score or not. Mm -hmm. And don't don't feel so rushed to take the SAT two. You you still have your junior year um, to take these tests as well. And now that SATs have added the August test, you actually have an opportunity to study over the summer to take it before August, um, for August actually. Um, okay, and then the last question is, what would be your best recommendation for my son in terms of SAT twos besides scoring well? Besides scoring well, um, I think I hit most of the parts, which, parts, which is like um, the farts or God. the parts. <laughs> Got him. Uh, Got me. Got me. <laughs> Put it on the clip. Uh, most of the parts. Um, so. Um, have a re have a regimen, have a schedule. Buy yourself at least two to three months on the weekends, three to five hours per week. Uh, get the right materials. This is actually my biggest issue. I'm a stickler as a teacher about getting some 
test prep company materials because you can tell with enough experience that the questions are just not that right. So if you can keep to the original source, like the previous years and the previous decades worth of SAT2 math level two tests, go on those and practice those rigorously. Um, key phrase for your son is you can't rely on your academic uh, after school academy, you can't rely on a teacher. You know, I went to academies before too, and I used to say like, oh, my teacher sucks or my teacher doesn't teach this well. But in the end, those are all excuses. Millennials and Z generation, our biggest problems is, problem is that we make too many excuses. We'll I charge realize you a dollar for every excuse. Oh, like Jim I love that. <laughs> Can we do that? <laughs> Parents who are listening, this was an amazing system where you get a $20 allowance. Maybe 20 is a little bit too much. I don't know these days. I had, I had five bucks a week when I was growing up. God, that's so sad. <laughs> well, uh, 20 bucks a month, and every time they make an excuse, why didn't you pull out the trash? Because the wheels were squeaky. Take away a dollar. <laughs> okay? um, we got to stop this. Getting a better score on your test is matter of willpower. Rinse effort. and repeat effort. Kind of like the GPA. I know said that we said GPA was effort and test scores are aptitude, but being a test taker myself who's taken the LSATs, the GRE, the GMATs, SATs, ACTs, Oh, man, the whole acronyms of all of them. Um, it <laughs> comes down to effort. It comes down to proper study skills, rinse and repeat. The only thing you need to ask as a student is for a place to study and study materials. The rest is on you. The motherly side of me will like to <laughs> <laughs> would like to <laughs> put in a, a quick two cents. Um, so first, uh, I would like your son to know that the SAT two is not the end all be all. Um, try your best. You know your effort is going to um, you reap what you sow on the on the SAT twos. Try your best to be confident. Get a lot of sleep, but not too much, um, and be prepared. Make sure you go to the SAT two test confident. Uh, and here are some exercises that I would like you guys to think about. Um, to prepare for testing. So the first thing is um, eating salmon or fish um, has a lot of omega in it and scientists have shown that omega really improves your brain functionality. So if you eat, if you drink, I mean, sorry, if you eat fish the night before and you drink milk the day of, it's supposed to improve your brain functionality. Um, the other thing is when you wake up in the morning, instead of brushing your teeth with the right hand or whatever hand your natural hand is to write with, um, use your opposite hand, um, which also increases your brain functionality like for when you're opening a door brushing your teeth yep. and then also recite the alphabet backwards which is a really great warm-up um, and then I would also not wake up 15 minutes before the test um, you would you probably want to wake up like an hour before um, that you have to leave your house um, have a have a nice little breakfast that's not too filling parents don't feed bacon pancakes um, mm. scrambled eggs and all sorts of things I would say like a nice little cereal you know maybe complex maybe Toast. I heard yep. eggs were good for you when you... Uh, yep, eggs are fine, just not anything too, too heavy where you're going to be falling asleep. Um, and then do some review practice materials, um, maybe reviewing the... Maybe doing one reading comprehension or, or something like that. Not where your brain is getting exhausted, but just kind of prepping that. Stimulate um, your brain. Stimulating. Yeah, there you go. That's a good word to start the process. Um, so that would be what the motherly I side... I know you're going to get a holistic Jenny checking in for the podcast. It's really... It's it's really interesting Shaman. because when I was in high school, um, a psychologist came to our high school and gave us all of these tips, you know, the first time SAT test takers. And that's what they told us. So I always use I feel like tips. there's probably a lot of little tips and tricks like that. Um, but you are like for any health advice. Don't rely you are, on salmon to pass your SAT <laughs> too. You, you are also the best, you know, determinant of, you know, how, how you work as a person. So um, figure out what works for you, you know, trial and error. Just not on the day of. Not not on yeah, not on the day the, 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 on the day <laughs> of, but <laughs> figure it out earlier. All right. Awesome. Um, okay, so thank you all of you guys and thank you so much for listening to season two, episode one. Tune in next week for our season two, episode two. We're going to delve into college essays, which is Travis's favorite topic. Yeah. Um, you ready for a really long Southern lecture. <laughs> <laughs> if you missed any of our episodes, you can find it on iTunes or www.thehallpasspodcast.com. Um, again, we were just so overwhelmed by the number of emails that we've received and just this really nice email from this parent as well. So um, we would love for you to continue to send us emails of general topics or questions that you have and who knows we might feature you on our next episode um but you can email us at the hall pass podcast at gmail.com there it is all right until all right. next time see you all later bye, bye. bye. later bye.